Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan, and this is a carefully crafted devotional journey through the New Testament. Let's venture into deeper water as we consider what it means to follow Jesus in the world we live in now. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. We have an interesting idea to explore in this episode. It is presented in two different instances, and both are certainly worth exploring. So let's read two passages together. The first is Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 45. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The people of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of anyone, it goes through arid places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Now, let's move a little ahead to Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. These two discussions begin with a specific request. The Pharisees are asking Jesus for a sign from heaven to back up the claims that he has been making. These religious elites often get a bad rap for their hearts and their attitudes, and they're going to get a stern word from Jesus in this passage. But some credit is due here as well. Israel's original independence was partly based on miracles to prove divine mission. Moses, before the Exodus, was empowered with a number of miracles to prove both to Pharaoh and to Israel that he was indeed divinely appointed to his task. So to ask for a divine sign was on one hand good diligence on their part. But how much did they really need? Let's face it, Moses only had seven miracles up his sleeve over a short time and he convinced what was effectively two nations with those. But we are well into two years of Jesus' ministry here, and he has done a whole heap of supernatural stuff and has been making who he was abundantly clear. There have been enough signs and wonders in many forms to give those with open hearts enough evidence to place their faith in him. And yet, here they are, asking for a sign more to their liking, implying that they would believe if he delivered one on the spot. To God in the flesh, they are making this statement. 
Pull a sideshow miracle right now on our bidding and we will gladly follow you. There was clearly no sincerity in either of these passages and Jesus is very much aware of this. He knew exactly what they were thinking and what they were feeling at this time. And all of that knowledge shapes the detailed response that he makes to them. In Mark's account, we see that Jesus actually sighed deeply at the Pharisees making such requests. It's the same sort of sigh that is written about when Jesus healed the deaf mute in the last episode. There was something deeply moving about all this talk to Jesus. The Pharisees were just not getting it, and their blindness to him in this instance was genuinely moving to him. Why did it move him so much? Because Jesus could see what's going on at a level they themselves can no longer see. Here's the analysis of what Jesus is saying. First, Jesus calls these people adulterous. To be clear, it wasn't the bedroom practices of the Pharisees that were being called into question here. These men usually upheld the highest of moral standards in this area of life. No, the issue that Jesus is addressing is in fact idolatry. They were more enamored with their controlling ways and self-promotion than true worship. After Israel's exile in Babylon, some 500 years prior, the nation's leadership finally caught onto the fact that idolatry was wrong. However, they may have gotten rid of all their pagan idols, and they may have cleansed the nation from the appearance of idolatry, but their hearts remained essentially unchanged. Their greatest idol was the one they hadn't adequately addressed yet, themselves. And when any sort of idol takes residence in your heart, be it a statue or yourself, you will enter an adulterous relationship that flies in the face of a covenant-keeping God. If you want to see the link, you can get a pretty good idea of this out of Isaiah chapters 56 and 57. There you will read about the leaders of Israel being blind and slack drunkards. You'll read about righteous people perishing in that nation and idolatry running rampant. And you will see God's response to it all as well. Isaiah 57 verses 7 to 8 says this, You have made your bed on a high and lofty hill. There you went up to offer your sacrifices. Behind your doors and your doorposts you have put your pagan symbols. Forsaking me, you uncovered your bed. You climbed into it and opened it wide. You made a pact with those whose beds you love, and you looked on their nakedness. Do you see the bedroom illusions there? Do you also see the idolatrous link? A heart that wants God on demand but refuses to give up themselves or any other item of worship will always be in this adulterous state before God. And the Pharisees standing before Jesus, giving fake respect and demanding a sign, were living divided lives that Jesus would not indulge with another throwaway sign. Second, Jesus identifies that they had no sense of discernment about what God was doing around them. This is where Jesus points out that they could read the sky and anticipate the coming weather, but as religious folk, they could not be in tune with what the Lord was actually doing in their midst. There was a lot of talk about the Messiah getting around at the time, and they even had some indicators in the Old Testament pointing somewhat towards their time about his arrival. A great example is the vision of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel shows up and offers some timing to the whole messianic deal. Let me read to you verses 24 to 27. Seventy sevens, 
are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Israel had a clearly anointed one, the meaning of the word Messiah, right before them which loads of scholars and most of the early church believed fitted the timelines of Daniel's vision. They had before them someone who was displaying all the traits of being divine and messianic. Yet as religious, adulterous folk, they were oblivious to his presence. They literally didn't know who the Messiah was when he stood right in front of them. They were proudly discerning of worldly concerns, but not discerning at all when it came to the spirituality of their faith expression. And finally, in the assessment of Jesus, these Pharisees before him were oblivious to the absence of God's presence within. This is what Jesus is pointing to with the swept-out room and the removal of the evil spirit. Israel and its leadership was at that time, to its credit, a swept-out room. After the exile and before the arrival of Jesus, the nation had at times been quite diligent in the pursuit of holiness, particularly in more recent years. There was a time of outward cleanliness, but the nation had become a spiritual vacuum on the inside. They removed their idols and did their best to reinstate every ceremony and tradition they could. They were effective in driving out wrongdoing in many ways and were diligent in holding those that violated that cleansing to account. The issue, however, is that while all that sweeping was going on, nothing all that godly was put in its place. They swept out idolatry and unrighteous behavior with a religious broom, but didn't furnish their house with justice, mercy, or love. They swept out the pagan ways with the broom of law and ceremony, but didn't allow the Spirit to come and refurnish them and restore from within. As a result, the collective heart of Israel might have looked okay, but in reality it was a hollow shell of its former glorious self before God. If nothing godly was going to go in, Jesus tells these Pharisees that other things will take up residence again instead, and the latter state of play will be even worse than the former. In other words, if the Spirit doesn't take up residence, all the outward show of religion was pointless at best and destructive at worst. Friend, your faith will continually flounder if all you do is express faith with a broom, but don't put the welcome mat out for the Holy Spirit. These Pharisees were found by Jesus to be in a really sorry state. There was outward show, but no inner devotion to God, only themselves enough to be deemed spiritually adulterous. There was ignorance to the Spirit of God. They couldn't see what was at work around them. 
neither were they making him welcome within. Yet they proudly demanded another sign from God, arrogantly playing with God in the flesh and toying with their belief in him. To them he replies this, You want a sign? Okay, I will give you one. Jonah. A reluctant prophet was sent by God in the 7th century BC. He was sent from Israel into the arch-enemy pagan nation of Assyria with a message of impending destruction and a call to repent. Before getting to the destination, he had a meltdown and tried to get away from his calling by catching a boat headed the opposite direction. This goes horribly wrong and he ends up getting thrown overboard where a huge fish is ready and waiting to swallow him up and take him back to shore. This journey took three days. He finally gets back to where he needed to be and gets to preach and lead a city to repentance. The city which was marked for destruction was certainly populated with evil people, but also contained what is described as 120,000 people who didn't know their left hand from their right. Scholars point to this being people who were just trying to live good lives or were innocent people despite their king's commitment to evil, hence God's urgency in getting a message into the city through Jonah. Like Jesus, he preached repentance. And like the ministry of Jesus, the least likely ones came to repentance, the innocence in both cases clearly highlighted. The sign would be complete through a similar three-day event. Jonah sat for three days in a fish belly, and immediately after this event, Gentile repentance would come. Jesus, the one greater than Jonah, and even the one greater than Solomon, would be confined to a grave for three days. In a few months, this would all go down and the whole world would be affected like never before. And if that wasn't enough of a sign, consider these additional comments to the Pharisees here. Those Ninevites who repented and the Queen of Sheba who came a great distance to hear godly wisdom will actually outshine you in that final day. Their heart and their hungriness for the things of God far exceeds your own and their fervor and passion will be your condemning. Is that enough of a sign for you, Pharisees? At this point, let's reflect on this, and I have a different way of doing that this time. First, this is a discussion entirely held with a group of Pharisees, with no input from his disciples at all. We can learn from this, because if you've been a long-time Christian like I have, you will know the risk of being a bit Pharisaic can emerge. American pastor and author Larry Osborne offers a list of ways we can identify modern-day Pharisees. He writes that a sense of disdain can emerge towards those who are not as faith-developed as we are. In his words, it's a disdain for those at the back of the line, the ones that kind of get it slower than we do, and we view them with arrogance. He says there is a sense of exclusivity in the way we express our faith, and there are extra-biblical rules and expectations that we put on each other, be it religious or otherwise. There can also be a pattern of idolizing the past. If there is any hint of accidental Pharisaic expression going on, then allow Jesus to do some work within you on that, and perhaps have a chat with your pastor about it too. The second reflection comes with a question. Is there any accidental idolatry going on? In particular, have we elevated ourselves and our agendas above God and His? That puts us in what Jesus calls an adulterous place. So I encourage you to bravely deal with anything that looms bigger than Jesus in your life. Third, 
What is the Holy Spirit doing in and around you? Are you able to actually discern those things? Remember, friend, in Christ, you are a swept-out room. The idols and the sin and the past is swept away. And this makes room for the Holy Spirit to be able to dwell within. And from within, he continually shows you what he is doing around you. But if he's not welcome, other things will take up residence instead. You don't want that. So continually make space for the Spirit of God to lead you and speak into things both internally and externally. Finally, I want to leave you with what I think is a pretty powerful thought. While I fully believe Jesus is actively working for those who serve him, and while I fully believe in modern-day miracles and encounters with Jesus, there is one sign, one miracle that matters more than all of these things, one that our very salvation relies on. I'm speaking, of course, about his death and his resurrection. If ever there was a sign proving who Jesus actually is and what links he went to in order for you to believe and live a redeemed life, then that would be it. The empty grave is the ultimate sign of Jesus' reality and his authority. So, if you never see or hear anything from the Lord until the day you meet him in eternity, I want you to know that he has done more than enough to show who he is. Friend, you can trust him completely based on what he has already done. Thanks for tuning in. To stay in touch, like our devotions in the Deep End Facebook page and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I look forward to catching up next time.